About uh, 10, 11 years ago, I took one of my first student ministries outside of the epicenter of progressive culture, Felicity, Ohio. You've all heard of it, I'm sure. It's about an hour outside of Cincinnati. Uh, it, it has one stop sign, literally. Uh, I, I'm from Cincinnati. I'm a city boy. Uh, so it was a new experience to me. But, but it was a time in my life where um, the, the Lord freed up <laughs> some things going on in my life. Uh, I don't have enough time to get into it where I decided, you know what, I'm going to go back to Cincinnati and go to seminary. I, I want to go to uh, uh, Cincinnati Bible College and get my master's in theology, which is kind of an interesting thing to even think that you can get a master's in God. And while I do that, I, I want to get experience working in the local church. So I accepted a position about an hour east of uh, Cincinnati uh, in Felicity, uh, Ohio, and it was one of the sweetest uh, ministries of, of my life. I rolled into town and uh, I, said, I said it was a small town. I rolled into town, and there were probably five to ten students on a good Sunday uh, there when I first got there. And I'll never forget meeting uh, Nick and Jeremy. Uh, they were my biggest headaches, uh, but the most pr- profound conversations of God and life and theology came from uh, those two guys as well as some other students. And they, they decided that they were really—here's how I see it, okay? All right, parents? I see it as— Wow, this amazing guy is coming to disciple us. Let's invite our friends. Really, it was a small town. There was a 26-year-old, me, that had, you know, keys to the church minivan. I was willing to take them to, you know, Wendy's and, you know, uh, movies and different things like that. But for whatever reason, in the event, God decided to have fun with us. And through those guys and a handful of other students, the student ministry went from like 10 kids to sometimes 60 to 70 kids in like a year and a half. It was, it was incredible. Uh, one of the things that we always did was we had a back-to-school bash. It's a farming community, so a lot of families had a ton of land and pools, and so we would play ultimate frisbee, have pool parties. Uh, 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 we played, well, back in Illinois, they called it bags. Cornhole, that's what we call it. That's what the correct name is, as I grew up. We cornhole. It was a blast. And so I had just started dating Crystal, my, my now wife, for about two or three weeks, and uh, we were getting ready to go to the party, and I forgot the hot dog buns, okay? You can't be in student ministry if you can't remember the food, all right? Of all the things, don't forget the food. And so I swung by the church office and went into my office, and Crystal followed me, and I, you know, I, I'm a guy. I can't see anything that's right in front of me. And uh, she told me where it was. I think it was on the shelf some above some commentary that I probably never read, so I wasn't, I wasn't going to find it. And she said, it's over there. So I grabbed the buns. I was getting ready to leave. And my office phone rang, which I thought was weird uh, because students, like, who calls a landline anymore? And it was 30 minutes before, um, before the event. And so I thought, what, what in the world is, is going on here? Like, who could this be? And listen, guys, the Holy Spirit sounds a lot like your wives, all right? Just giving you a marriage tip there. Uh, I, was, I was getting ready to leave, and uh, my girlfriend, now wife, Crystal, said, you need to answer the phone. It could be important. And I was like, I just want to get to the party. So I listened to her, and I picked up the phone, and my world changed. On the other end was Becky, one of our incredible adult leaders. Uh, I've never seen uh, somebody disciple uh, high school females and women uh, better and more effectively than Becky. She wouldn't tell you that. She's very humble and quiet, uh, but she's the real deal. And on the other end, she wasn't her sweet, soft, introverted self. She was panicking. There was tears. There was hysteria in her voice, and she just kept yelling the word Nick. It's Nick. It's Nick. It's Nick. I said, what, what, are, you, what are you talking about? 
you know, and got her to calm down and, and, and breathe a little bit. Now, I, I'm worried. And she said, there's been an accident at his house. He's being lifelighted to uh, Cincinnati Children's Hospital downtown. I said, what? What's happening? Nick's in the hospital, in the ICU. I'm like, oh, okay. okay. Remember, I can't see things in front of me. So she said, I need you to, so the shock is setting in. Uh, I've never experienced, I went to one funeral when I was younger, it was my grandmother's, but, but I never experienced anything, a teenager being in the ICU, anything like this. And so I needed her to help me. You know, go to the house, tell the adult leaders that uh, what's going on, don't tell the students, but tell the adult leaders that, you know, for the parents to come over, get their kids, and then tell them once everybody's there. That didn't work out, but it was a great plan. And then I need you to go to the hospital ASAP. I got the children's probably in 30 minutes. If I was obeying the law like a good Christian, I should have gotten there like in 45 minutes. But, but I just remember the rush, the anxiety, the anticipation. When I got into Children's Hospital, I went into the family waiting room. You guys, I had never heard noises and wailing like I had heard that day. Um, I hate to ask this because the answer is probably yes. Have you, have you been there? D- did you get the phone call? Even, even, even if you got the diagnosis from a family member that, you know, with their cancer, they had six, 12 months to live, it doesn't make it any easier, does it? And I walked into this room and with sweaty, for, uh, with sweaty heads and, and, and faces painted over red and tears and snot running down and, and the chest moving up and down, up and down, up and down, uh, palm, uh, sweaty palms, and, and it was just a mess. And I looked for Michelle, Nick's mom, and she was sitting on the ground in the family room uh, waiting room, just almost lifeless. I don't know what was holding her back up. Uh, maybe it was the Lord. I, I don't know. And I sat down next to her, and, and, and I put my arms around her, and her husband uh, came over. Scott put his arm around me, hugged me, and we just sat there and cried. Like, what just happened? Nick's 15. He's two weeks into his high school career, sophomore year. Like, what, what could have happened? Like, he, he needs to get his license. He needs to summon up the courage to ask a girl out to prom. He needs to go on uh, college visits with his parents. He doesn't need to be in the ICU. What, what, what's happening? These are, I'm 26, guys. This is a big thing for a 26-year-old, let alone any human to experience in terms of pastoral care and trauma right out of the gate, right? Talk about swinging for the fences. And we, we were praying that Nick would get better, and it seemed like his body was responding to what the doctors were doing, but uh, honestly, on the, f- on the fourth day, the doctor said, uh, what's going on, and I'm keeping this, you know, obviously you can respect what I'm trying to do, keep it private as much as I can with telling you what happened, that, that Nick was basically relying on the machine to keep him alive, and the doctor said, you need to, family needs to start making uh, uh, plans for, to take him off the machine, and, you know, obviously, eventually funeral services and stuff like that. I just, I, guys, I didn't know where to put that. It's been 10 years. I still don't. Every September 9th, I think about Nick. I think about Michelle and Scott and their, their uh, three other kids. When I was at the funeral, um, I was allowed to uh, give the welcome and the opening prayer, which I was so thankful that there was a lead minister there <laughs> who did the service because I, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and plus, emotionally, I was just out of it. And uh, I'll never forget, there must have been, you know, pastor math here, four to six hundred people. I mean, it felt like 
it took Michelle and Scott forever, but they hugged, shook hands with every single person at that church that fall uh, afternoon. And, and I, and I uh, lingered around Michelle, and I was just interested in um, eavesdropping. I was just interested in what uh, people were saying to her, because I think a lot of times, I think in general, Americans don't really know what to do with death, but we, we, we try to comfort people, and we say things that are on the target, but not really uh, bullseye. And so I was, uh, I was trying to protect my friend. That's that firstborn syndrome that I have, trying to protect my friend Michelle. And some of the things that uh, folks said to her was, you just need to let go and let God. What does that mean? Like her kid's gone. Like, sh- like how about get Nick back and then let God figure it out? I, I-, I know, and you know what the people meant, but-, but it just seemed a little weird, right? Other people said, uh, you know, it'll all work out. What does that mean? Uh, no, like, can reincarnation be a thing? Can Jesus come and resurrect Nick from the, can that happen? What do you mean it'll all work out? This is a defining moment in our family story. What, what do you mean it'll work out? And the thing that I hear all the time at funerals, and, and I, I've been guilty of saying it, well, you know, God has a plan. A plan? What kind of playbook? Did he grab the Browns playbook? This is a terrible plan. What plan consists of letting your son die before he can even get his license, let alone... Uh, take a girl to a prom, go visit colleges, be able to old enough to rent a car, buy a house, even have kids of his own. Sometimes when grief hits us, we're not really sure what to say. Uh, Jesus lost a friend, lost a lot of friends in his ministry, but there's one story that recorded what actually happened and, and how Jesus processed grief. And one of the things that I found helpful is not what Jesus said, but what he did. And in John 11, 35, Uh, John says that Jesus wept. Jesus wept. A couple weeks ago, we said that Jesus claimed to be God. I am that I am. And the God of, and if that is true, which I'll show my hand, I believe that it is. uh, If that is true, the God of the universe is moved by this? Notice it didn't say that Jesus, like, got a Sunday school lesson together and tried to explain what was happening. He just entered into the full picture of what his friends were experiencing. And he let the gravity of the situation run him over like a Mack truck in the way Michelle was ran over like a Mack truck in the way that Scott and Nick's uh, other brothers felt like they were ran over. It's in this text, this context, where Jesus makes his fifth statement about himself. We're in this series, Jesus is, because we want to, as best as I can as a flawed, sinful human being, allow Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, to speak for himself. And then we decide, you decide individually, is this somebody I want to follow, or is this a joke? Is this like a religious emotional crutch, or is this actually the truth? And it's in this context, at a friend's funeral, he says the fifth statement about how Jesus chooses to define himself. In John eleven twenty five, Jesus says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Okay, n- now we're, now we're kind of shifting from sort of Sunday school lessons to the teacher going, okay, if you thought this was a great lesson, a great sermon, do you actually believe this? I'm not asking you to agree with it now. I'm asking you, I'm actually asking you to believe this. Now, here's the deal, friends, I, I, I think. 
If Jesus is who he claimed to be, then he's talking about the deepest, most sensitive, merciful, touchy subject of ultimate reality in our lives. That he has something to say about what happens to us when we die. Now, if he's not the son of God, if he's not the creator of the world, if he's not the great I am, this is probably the most sadistic, uh, unempathetic statement person that we've ever come, even, even, even worse than Charles Manson, if he's not telling the truth. I don't know if you know this or not, but not everybody in the Bible believed that Jesus is or was who he claimed to be. That's ultimately, historically, how he ended up on a cross. And so what I want to do this morning is talk about three aspects of grief. Uh, The questions of grief, the emotions of grief, and then believe it or not, uh, we've got some good news today, uh, the grace of grief. And the story of Jesus' friend Lazarus begins in John 11, verses 1 through 11, when John records this. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was born from Bethany. Bethany is from... Uh, the church to where I live, or farmhouse roasters. That's kind of where I live. You're welcome. It's amazing. Uh, Bethany is a mile and a half, maybe almost two miles from Jerusalem. And Jesus is murdered outside of the city. And so John chapter 12 is the beginning uh, of the end of Jesus's ministry. So, So Jesus is carrying his weight that not many other people realize or get even in this moment. But he's very close to where he's going to walk into Jerusalem and essentially give himself over uh, to be crucified. So he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha. This Mary was brother, whose brother Lazarus, now lay sick, was the one who poured perfume on the Lord or Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So Jesus is not where Lazarus is, but he's now been informed that he's sick. He's sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sisters and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed for two more days. That's not loving. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, Love when people in the Bible get very uh, proper. That means when people get proper with us, it means they want something, right? (laughs) But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews were there. They tried to stone you, and yet you're going back. Two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus said, I am that I am, and Jews picked up rocks to stone him. That's what the disciples are referring to. Do you remember that interaction? We do. Why do we need to go back there, right? Lazarus, he'll make it to heaven. Why do we need to, you know, it's unfortunate that he's ill, but why, why do we need to go back? Jesus answered, he kind of lays into him here, are, you, uh, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they, uh, for they see by the, the world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. Jesus talks about the Jewish uh, calendar and the way that Jews... Um, a thought of time. There were two 12-hour increments, day and night. Pretty simple. And Jesus is like, look, you're my disciples. 
You're my protégés. You're my interns. You're not going to get home. You don't get to go home early today, all right? Our friend is sick. Jesus knew that he's going to die. We need to go take care of him. And as long as there's light out and as long as there's ministry to be done, guys, we're going to take care of our friend. Like, how is that even a, that's a no-brainer. Even, even unbeknownst to the disciples that Lazarus would eventually die, they, they had questions of grief. And sometimes those questions are self-preservation, right? When we lose somebody that we love, they're not always bad. It's just, how am I going to take care of myself? How, how, do, how do I become a single parent? I just lost my spouse. How do, how do I become a parent of two kids instead of three kids? Questions my friends Michelle and Scott were asking. We all have different kinds of questions of grief, and that, that's okay. And they can be questions of life. How do, I, how do I take the next step forward? They can be questions of doubt. They can be questions of certainty. They're all, there's no one way to grieve, as we're going to find out here in just a moment. But when Jesus rolls into Bethany, Martha, <laughs> Martha has some questions for Jesus as well. And she's not as polite as the disciples tried to be. In verse 20, uh, John records, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. That's important. You'll find out why in a minute. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And in this context, Jesus makes his fifth statement about who he claims to be. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Jesus is having a hard day. Uh, he's, he's, he's a week and a half, two weeks from being on a cross. Uh, he's got enemies trying to kill him. He's got disciples that aren't getting it, right? Any teachers in the room that can say amen with their students, right? And then he's got friends that he loves. He, lo he lost a friend, and he shows up to the funeral home. Why did you get here earlier, Jesus? This is your fault. We, we do that, don't we? Because hurt people hurt people. And even in our grief and brokenness, we, we say things that, that we don't really mean, or maybe we do mean, and, and, and we're not really our, ourselves. Because we're, it's hard to process something like when my friend passed away, something like when your friend or your loved one passed away, whether you had the, the grace, maybe, of knowing how long they might live, or even if it was sudden. We all have questions. And, and I don't know if you realize this or not or picked up on this, especially when there's school shootings. I, I remember this back even when 9-11 happened, uh, that when something tragic happens, uh, depending on where you get your news, it, you know, we, it all bends the truth. They're all making money. But one news station blames the other. Well, if this would have happened, that wouldn't have happened. Or this, you know, these, the Democrats this, or the Republicans that, or we're, we're just throwing arrows across the field. But you and I know that that narrative doesn't work, does it? It doesn't really work when we experience grief to start blaming other people. That's, that's not really the gospel story, is it? W what you tend to hear with school shootings and hurricanes and, and, and when people are being interviewed, they, they say things like, this is terrible, this is tragic, 
but we will rise from the ashes, right? Like the phoenix. We will, we will be a better community. We will, we will be better students. We'll be better friends to our students in middle school and high school. We, something good will come out of it. I think that's because whether you're a Christian or not, the fact that you're a human, you believe that even in the darkest moments of our history and even in your life, that something good must come of this. I think it's because, like, back in Ecclesiastes, God says he puts eternity in our hearts. That, 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 that even, even if you would say, I'm not a Jesus follower today, buried in the bones of who you are is a sense of hope. That there will be a better day, right? One, one song says, tomorrow will be brighter. Friends, that's the gospel narrative. And, and that's what Jesus is getting ready to show his friends. That's what Jesus promised his friends. I, I know you're grieving. I know you're overwhelmed. I know you lost your friend. I, I lost a good friend. But something good will come out of this. Something transformative will come out of this. Jesus promises us that. To which he, because it's a big ask, to which he asks, do you, do you believe this? And this is the whole point of the series, friends, that we would take Jesus off the shelf from being a transactional idea that, you know, we, we got saved at one point, now we're good, and we don't have to go to church anymore except for holidays, when our mom asked us, to taking it off the shelf and, and making it not transactional, but transformative. That that's the relationship that Jesus wants. And it's not with people that we've just lost, but Jesus loves not fixing us, but resurrecting us. Taking things that are broken and lost and have been buried, and he calls them out of us and says, I want to resurrect this. It's time to stop, stop stuffing this. It's time to uh, stop ignoring this. I want to hold your hand and walk with this uh, with you. And secondly, Jesus experiences not just questions, but the emotions of grief. And this is how Jesus processes his friend's death. When Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come alongside of her, so these would be Jews that, that made the mile and a half trek out of Jerusalem. So th this is a pretty popular family if, if a large city would have people come out of the city to this really small town called Bethany. Uh, so this is a family that has some influence in, in its community. When the Jews had come out, uh, come along, they were also weeping. Jesus was deeply moved and troubled in his spirit. I want you to see something here. Martha, Martha came cha charging after Jesus like a linebacker. Where were you? You tell me that God exists? You didn't come through. Why in the world would you hear that your friend was sick and almost dying? Why? Why would you be so sadistic that you would wait two days to come? And Jesus answers her. But what did Mary do? M Mary is, is I, I, I'm, I'm projecting here, so give me the grace. I'm, I'm admitting that. But, but Mary, I, I picture Mary being so sweet and so sensitive, introverted, backstage kind of person, doesn't really like the limelight. And, and I think if she were to look at Jesus, she would just crumble because she's in so much pain. And I think that's why she stayed in the, I could be wrong, I wasn't there, but I think that's why she stayed in the house. And, and notice how Jesus counsels Mary. He sees Mary weeping, and he joins her, and he begins to cry. W what does that mean for us? 
that Jesus is the perfect counselor. Depending on how he created you and how you, you are wired, he knows how to counsel you in times of grief and loss. And just the amount of dosage with the right amount of mercy applied to your soul. And what Mary needed, Martha didn't need. And what uh, Martha needed, Mary didn't need. And he so beautifully and pastorally applied mercy to both ladies. And he wept. And, and you, you need to know that when you sit with your friends and you cry with your friends, that the ministry of mercy is the shedding of tears. The ministry of mercy is the shedding of tears. The text is that Jesus was deeply moved. I'm throwing my professor under the bus because I had to sit back and go, what did I just hear? I remember when I was in seminary, uh, this is after Nick passed away about the next year, and we were in this text, and uh, uh, the professor said a lot of preachers won't go there uh, because they like Jesus to be, you know, strong and mighty and the guy that always comes through. But in this text, he said the Greek language would lend itself to the fact that Jesus felt so overwhelmed by grief and loss and tragedy that his friend died that he felt emotionally out of control in that situation. Let me say that again. In this moment, Jesus emotionally felt out of control. This wasn't one tear. This was when I walked into Children's Hospital in the family room. Palms were sweaty, foreheads were sweaty, faces were turning red, snot running down the nose, tears just gushing like a river from people's eyes. Jesus doesn't explain anything. He just steps into it, and he sits with his friends, and he weeps with his friends uncontrollably. Like the same noises I heard in the family room, Jesus is letting out from his bones that his friend is dead, and, and it affects his family. That, that's why it's so important this week. If you go back and read John 11, John is very careful to tell us at least four, maybe five times that Jesus really loves his friends, even in the midst of overwhelming pain. There's this beautiful practice in Judaism. Uh, I mentioned it before a few weeks ago, and you're seeing it happen right here. It's called sitting shiva. And when somebody passed away, uh, like Lazarus, and you saw that there's a group of Jews that came from Jerusalem, made the mile and a half, two-mile trek to Bethany, sitting shiva means you sit, and shiva is Hebrew for seven, that you sit with the person grieving for a week, and you say nothing. And you sit there. And when the person mourning and grieving has questions, you answer them. When the person grieving needs milk from the store, you get up and leave, and then you come back and you sit. There's this beautiful practice that the scriptures teach that we don't run away from our pain, but that we actually step into it. And Jesus makes this beautiful promise that while we might not get everything answered in the midst of our tragedy, we know that Jesus is always with us. And he too weeps on our behalf. And he says what we say, that this life is not fair. It should not be this way. He weeps with his friends. 
if we don't handle grief properly, we tend to stuff it down. And we tend to put it underwater like the way I tried to dunk or drown my, my brothers at the pool during the summertime. It turns out that when you put your brother underwater, he likes to live. And then eventually, boom, comes out of the water. And what you kept down comes to the surface. And when we don't deal with grief, pain, and loss, and when it comes to the surface, we tend to hurt a lot of people. In the book of Ruth, Naomi experienced a lot of tragedy and loss, and she stuffed it. She actually said, made this request, don't call me Naomi, she told them, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Mara is the Hebrew word for, for bitter. She said, don't, I can't, can't do this anymore. God, I, I went to church every Sunday. The doors were open. I served. I gave 12% of my income. <laughs> I, I did all the quote-unquote right things, and this is the hand. You, I'm done. I'm done. Here's the deal, friends. If we're Christian and we walk away from God during tragedy, the grief is still there. Claiming atheism or agnosticism or another religion doesn't make the pain go away. And I think that's the beauty of this text, that Jesus is with us in our grief and with us in our pain. And thirdly and finally, he offers us the grace of grief. This is amazing. In verse 38, John records, Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance to take away the stone. He said, but Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, so, see, she still believes that Jesus will bring Lazarus from the dead, but then he gets this very practical. Well, if we open it, it's going to smell. By this time, there's a bad odor, for he has been down there for, he's been down for four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you? <laughs> oh, don't you love how merciful and gracious Jesus is with us? We didn't never get it. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus looked up to the Father. Even in the miracle of raising Jesus from the dead, he wants no credit. He wants all of us to worship the Father in heaven. This is why he waited the extra days. Because if he went, when he was called, people might misunderstand that Jesus went to medical school in Jerusalem and happened to save his life. Jesus wanted to make sure that when he brought Lazarus back to life, that nothing could be said uh, that would minimize the claim that Jesus makes that he's the God that brings dead things back to life. And if anybody in that first century story saw that, they would immediately cause to worship the Father in heaven. This is why he waited. And when he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen, cloths around his face. He said to him, take off the grave clothes and go. Here's the beauty of grace in grief. When it says that Jesus was weeping, what it literally means is, <sighs> he hates death. He hates what it does to us. He hates what it does to our friends. And the miracle in this story isn't that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. The miracle in this story is that Jesus goes into the tomb on our behalf because our sin drove us there. Our self-reliance drove us there. Our ability to make a ton of money and not necessarily, quote-unquote, need God for anything drove us there. 
And this is a metaphor of what Jesus does for us on the cross. I mean, this historically happened, don't get me wrong, but it's also a metaphor of what happens. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The disciples are angry at Jesus. Mary and Martha are angry at Jesus. Jesus is angry at death. He's angry at sin. Listen to this. You can know what's on the other side of death. It's Jesus. He's waiting for us. He's the God that brings dead things back to life. He's probably more passionate about your resurrection than you are, because we all have a lot of baggage, don't we? But this is the God who claims to bring dead things back to life. He's not interested in fixing us. He's interested in resurrecting us, bringing us all out of our death story. And by death story, I mean that thing that just, I'm done with God. Just call me bitter. I'm done engaging with God. I'll go to church because my family wants to, but don't ask me to do anything. I'll go, but I'm done with Jesus wants to resurrect that death story that's inside of you. We all have it. Even people that are Christians have it. We've stuffed it down. We've not worked through it. That's why Jesus went to the tomb and rose from the dead. That's why we gather together, because our God went to the grave on our behalf and in our place. And if you believe that, you can have eternal life. You can have the life that Jesus talks about. In just a moment, friends, we're going to experience communion together. Our band's going to come out and lead us uh, in some music as we think about Jesus' sacrifice. And there's a verse in uh, Psalm that I want to share with you guys that really helps us uh, center our hearts and our minds on uh, the message this morning. In Psalm 71.20, the writer says, Though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter, you will restore my life again. From the depths of the earth, you will again bring me up. It's a beautiful reminder that we all, we all have a death experience. We all have a death story. And we, we've all lost people. But, but the true reality is, is do we want to live in our death story? Do we just want to self-medicate with the things that keep us down, the self-talk that's going, running a million miles a second in our brain? Or do we want life? I love that this verse says that God will show us. He'll walk with us. This is going to be a bad season for you. This is going to be a great season for you. You're going to, oh man, you're going to love this. You're going to hate this. But all along the way, I will be with you. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Lord, we we thank you for... uh, the, the, the truth of your word. Um, I, I know a lot of people, myself included, probably weren't, weren't expecting a funeral sermon today, but this is what you have for us. And you promise us that you love us even in our death. You love us even when our friends die, when we get the cancer diagnosis, when our kid runs out in the street and gets creamed by a car, when one of my students has an accident and doesn't make it out of the ICU. You, you're you're the God that is for us, and you sit with us. And it's okay to come to you with doubt, with questions, with anger. It's okay, because you grieved, and you invite us to do the same. And we thank you as we celebrate the cross and communion, that you are the God that is resurrecting us, not just once, but every single day. Thank you for that promise. May we not hold it to ourselves. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.